I'm Michael, and today I'm playing Michael. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hello there. Yeah, I am Ernesto, and I'm playing a form of myself as well. I have, on occasion, been known as Ellie. And I'm still Kevin. <laughs> still? I'm definitely your Dungeon Master, Philip. Welcome to uh, Savage Tales of Ebron, Mourners of Lazar. This is our season one recap retrospective. Um, not sure what our name is for this, really, since this is the first one for this, since we're breaking up our campaign into seasons. Um, you know, we say like a fireside chat, or that's that was the previous well, yeah, one. This, so this is like a new thing. Part of the Gold Dragon fireside chats. I think we brought this out since we broke up this campaign into seasons. Me as a dungeon master, I do like at the conclusion of a campaign to do like retrospective with my players and stuff like that. Talk about characters, campaign, what they liked, what they didn't like, all that kind of stuff like that. And we thought we would record it tonight as a fireside chat. Probably saves a little bit of housekeeping for our listeners. Next week, we are going to have off. There won't be anything coming out from us. And then the following week, we will have our uh, first episode of season two after that. We got some questions from our listeners that we thought it, we'd start with some of those. The question from KKRP on Discord, a, aka Dylan, I've found the character ideas often morph from conception through creation into actual play. As you slowly find that your character's voice and place in the party dynamic, are there any changes that you experience with your current characters? In my mind, I was like wanting to play Truco even more of an asshole than he already seems to be, um, even more. But it's like I could have. I, I, I think that he, he. I'm trying to portray that in some ways. I hope uh, without the detriment of the the party. But at the same time, I don't know. Like I, I want to. I want to be a, a a team player as well so it's like that obviously you have one idea and then you have like oh i have to to mesh it with with the group here uh i don't know i would have been more pickpocketry even though i could fit things here and there uh or more deceiving as well uh which might not there, there hasn't been opportunity yet maybe there will be in the future but the future but um yeah, I think I, I, my character did change from the first conception to what it is now. And hopefully we keep changing. One word I would pick to describe Truco is incorrigible, not asshole. Yeah, yeah that too. He that is too. very incorrigible. That's, that's a good word. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, I absolutely understand that tension uh, of wanting to play that character who is uh, incorrigible and a bit of an asshole and likes to keep secrets. You know, that that was what I did in our last campaign. And uh, Ernesto, ironically enough, in that campaign was the, uh, was the party dad. He was the responsible one. He was the one who kept everyone in line and kept us from killing ourselves in increasingly stupid ways. And, you know, was just there making sure everyone got home. And partly because... My last character was the polar opposite of that. That was my plan for Dana from the start, um, conceptually, at least from a narrative perspective. Um, she went through a few 
iterations mechanically before I landed on what I did. Um, I'd actually mechanically wanted her to be a blatant ripoff of uh, the character Singe from Don Bassingthwaite's Dragon Below trilogy. You know, that classic spell sword with the fireball in one hand and the sword in the other. Um, and yeah, things changed there from point A to point B. I'm happy where they landed and where they're going. But conceptually, um, as far as wanting to come in with this firm idea of this is the character who is going to look out for the others. Um, that definitely, you know, I wouldn't say that's changed at all, but she's definitely had an interesting progression um, starting from uh, being overboard with that, with, you know, with being very stifling, especially with, uh, with Torlin, you know, just in that, in those early weeks on the Storm Reaver of the desperation, the helplessness, the not knowing how to function in that kind of environment um, to slowly coming into, okay, wait, there's, there's some other people here. They're okay. They're, they're helping us out. I can help them out. It's not just me and Torlin versus the world anymore. Got to expand that. And then coming into that final arc, um, from the mutiny to the events of the island, uh, kind of growing her into into someone who is well into someone who it makes sense to uh, to follow, to be you know to be a leader to be um yeah so but you know striking that balance between uh letting everyone do their thing and what they need to do versus the, the instinct to say, wait, no, no, don't do that. You know, don't throw <laughs> your life away um, is, is still very much attention there for me uh, as, as a player and in character as well. But uh, yeah, she hasn't fundamentally changed from, uh, from character creation in that sense, but I'm happy with how she's grown. Cool. Yeah, I can see. I can see that. Like the the thing that you first mentioned about the uh, Dana being like, for example, the la the last couple of sessions sessions, the the, the rescue from from the the tides uh, for Truco. And I would say Truco is ready to be the uh, small brother, annoying and energetic uh, from the party instead of what I was in the last campaign. So that's <laughs> that's a cool a cool uh, analogy. Yeah, and this yeah. um that's something I'm going to touch in more on one of the next questions we get to because uh, I'm I'm excited with where Truco came and where he's going as well. But we'll oh, get to cool. that later. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear uh the others first. Uh, for for me, uh it, I wasn't expecting to have a spiritual journey with his character whatsoever. Um, that was a surprise and it's been fun exploring that and, uh, Eberron's a fun setting to have, uh, trials or, or questions of faith, but usually when you have those trials of faith, normally it's the other end. Normally you have somebody who begins faithful and, and loses it or risks losing it. And here you have somebody who wasn't and, uh, seems to be encountering more and more aspects of the divine in, in Eberron. So that's fun. Are we talking about your priesthood as a devourer or for ROI uh, there with uh, Sadara's holy symbol? Uh, both. Um, the fact that it's 
if I had a nickel for every time Ruskell had a, a spiritual uh, moment or event in his campaign, I'd have two nickels, which is weird that it's happened twice, but um, <laughs> uh, but really when I, when I built Russ, I kind of knew he was going to go in, in basically one of two directions. He was either going to be more of a sub commander type and lean on his military background, or he was going to start pushing more towards, uh, being a Sky Knight, and I think the Sky Knight certainly has taken hold. Basically, all of his subcommander stuff has just gone into the the trash can. Um, those are that's kind of how the the character is molded uh, since I began envisioning him. Well, for Torlin, uh, I think originally I had it was either Ellie who approached me or myself that approached Ellie. Ellie swears that it was myself who approached her. I'm not so yes, sure, but uh, yeah, we had wanted to do this interrelated player character concept, and what survived from the initial idea was the idea of a character who had made a vow to the other's great-grandfather or grandfather, ancestor of some degree, and was now looking over uh, the other. And I had basically wanted to explore dwarves because with the release of Exploring Emeron ever since then, I was like, dwarves are so cool and I want to do a dwarf character and uh, get to delve into some of that material a little bit more. I second that sentiment. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the only one. Dwarves got love in Eberron. (laughs) Yeah. So... Originally, the concept had been, I think I had intended to do this sort of party dad idea. Evidently, that is not preceded as such, as we can certainly tell. Torlin, I still have this idea of him as a bit of a mentor. What he has to teach Dana, um, we'll see, I suppose. Um, and if she heeds any of those lessons, because he has a he has a very different cultural outlook than she does, of course. Um, and then mechanically, I always, as a player, like to have my choices made as far as the character progression goes, because it's so flexible with Savage World, uh, informed by whatever decisions I come up with during the gameplay. And so there are some very early things that occurred along the way that informed how I wanted to take the character. Uh, the first one being which oh, we were in that storm on the ship, and I decided, well, this would be a good time for somebody who is our enemy to get thrown into the sea and appease the devourer. And then from there, Torlin was somebody who has some unique outlooks on the Dark Six, to be sure. Not your standard vassal of the Sovereign Host, for sure. So yeah, things have certainly changed. Things have certainly changed and not just for a, you know, different cultural outlooks from a, a brellish dwarf versus a Syrian human peasant, but it, it's emerged over the course of the season that there are quite a few things about the way Torlin approaches life that actively butt up against Dana's code of honor. Um, so I'm really excited as, as a player to explore that a little bit more going forward into season two because code of honor is 
a major hindrance. It's a defining part of her character. It's not, you know, it's not one I intend to uh, use a couple of level ups to discard anytime soon, but we, you know, so yeah, bringing out that story of, uh, well, you don't always get along with family, do you? But I mean, even if you don't, you love each other anyways, most of the time. In our last campaign, for those who have read the blog, Ellie's character eventually discarded either a minor or a major hindrance through the use of an advancement. So I have to wonder what sort of scenarios and a major one would lead to her discarding a code of honor. A code of honor. That, that would that be, be a, that would a be tragic turn of character. I mean, yeah. tragic, tragic. That would be a bit, interesting. The way things, uh, <laughs> the way I've set things up, yeah, that would that would be a dark turn if uh, if that ever occurred. Yeah. And it would be very much planned out and have to uh, deliberately go down that road because something we we just kind of overlooked in secrets, especially since it was right at the end of the campaign was it actually takes two advances um, before you're um, that you must devote to uh, being able to discard a major hindrance. you basically have a dead, you know, a dead advance and then you can discard. So yeah, mm-hmm. if it happens, it will have to be incredibly deliberate and yeah, we'll, we'll probably be incredibly sad. I'd be well, sad. if there's any campaign that would fit something like that, it would be this campaign. This campaign has room for something for dark turns like that. Um, yeah, then uh, yeah, Dana goes rogue. Truco steps up and becomes the captain. Cats and dogs living together. That would be yeah. horrible. That would. Be, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop worst, that last That's fight. the worst timeline. That's the, the darkest timeline. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go to the darkest timeline. Segue. Right? <laughs> go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> I can't really answer that question as a DM, but, you know, talking to all of you about your character concepts and, and uh, your ideas of the characters and the ideas of the, plan, of the campaign initially, things have vastly changed from things started from my perspective. However, I'm not going to say much about that because this first season really hasn't showcased how my ideas of the campaign are changing based on the characters. Because I did warn you all that, this whole first part, which now has turned out to be season one, was definitely on rails and that the season would end with the rails coming off and the campaign becoming a big sandbox. So I've got I'm really excited about where things are going. I've got a lot of really good ideas now. For me, things have changed a lot based on how the characters have evolved and um, all that kind of stuff. Maybe I'll answer this, that question again after season two. So another question from KKRP, kind of related, which I think is good. Are there any situations in the campaign so far that you thought would go a completely different way? Are you happy with how they ended up going? Or do you still wake up in a cold sweat wondering what could have happened? I certainly think that the scenario aboard the Cloud Raver had the potential to go a different way, especially when... Portland started finding opportunities to do away with some of the the thugs aboard the ship uh, and subsequently was in danger of being uh, keelhauled. That's the word. Yeah. So I was preparing myself for putting together a new character after that session (laughs) for sure. Um, There were, that was, that was incredibly, uh, potentially changing moment um for me as well uh 
I know, Phil, do you mind if I pull back the curtain on that one a little bit? This is part of a retrospective, so. Yeah, so while, when that happened, when uh, Dana was unable to prevent uh, Torlin from being caught, and then he was, you know, and then he was sentenced to death, um, Phil knows me very well. He could see which way the wind was blowing, and he he sent me a private message on Discord, basically saying, "Just just sit tight through this. Please don't make me make me rock face kill you where you stand." And so I just went, "Okay, uh, <laughs> I mean." I, and uh, yeah, I trust him. We've been playing together for a while and we're friends. So that was, that was ultimately why, uh, why Dana did not, you know, go nuclear on the deck of the storm reaver at that point to try to get Torlin out. Um, because yeah, there, it wasn't time for her to die yet. <laughs> and apparently it wasn't time for him to die yet either. So, Yeah. I it would have been that. a lot more challenging too, because I mean, you're looking at the loadout of all those officers, and that would have been oh, quite yeah, no, a fight. There was absolutely no, there would have been no chance whatsoever for Dana, at the very least, to survive doing anything there. But uh, even with, um, even with how anxious I am about character death, I was fully prepared to do it, and I think Phil knew that. I think he was uh, getting oh, yeah. that vibe. I know you well enough that I knew where you were headed. So it was during <laughs> but, the session you know, I had to send her a private a, message. Know, there's that point and, where, as much as I, uh, as much as there are certain things I'm really anxious about and will will want to try to avoid, I like to play my characters who they are, and that was, yeah, that was going to be it. So first first moment here. Uh, I'll, I'll get to this in a second. Uh, the other thing about that scene that was interesting for me was after the fact, I realized kind of after the session, the Spiria de Escalier stairway wit, so to speak, the whole setup I could have completely misinterpreted. And there was a lot of, of leeway because what had set Torlin off was that they were in the bilge and he had spotted that the other three sailors down there had had knives in their boots, which if you think about it, it's a completely reasonable thing for sailors to be having when they're hunting rats in the bilges, right? So, and uh, cumulatively, it was the third or fourth thing on a series of notes. But (laughs) I was kind of thinking to myself, well, how am I going to have to adjust Torlin's perspective on things if he realizes that uh, the sailors he's killed were not the worst of folk because we've had a number of the Storm Reaver crew essentially be described uh, through a veil as having done some very bad things but there's not there hadn't been very many specifics on exactly who was who and who was and what was what so I was kind of feeling a bit like a murder hobo for some pretty good reasons. <laughs> I I think that there's a there is a point to which that reaction was not 
out of left field because you also did get a woe on your ominous ode before going down. And, you know, um, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that jumps out to you, uh, you know, when you're, when you're playing, but uh, Phil had been telegraphing pretty hard for a good two sessions by then that Sudak had it in for you and hated you and was going to be happy to see you go down. And she was one of those people in the build. So, you know, for me, from that perspective, it, it was a reasonable decision. At the same time, the look on everyone's face, including yours, when Phil asked what you were going to do next, and you just went, yeah, I'm just going to go slit his throat and just cannonball Portland up at this fork <laughs> and one-shot at him. Oh, that was... That was priceless. That was yeah. Priceless. Fast furious fun, baby. Five more feet and I'll have climbed Mount Sudak. You know, <laughs> one of those scenarios. So my question for Phil here is what can you pull back the curtain on uh, in terms of your planning regarding that scene? If Torlin had wound up dead in the bilge, what would I, that I have had no looked planning. like? First off, you had it all planned that they were going to kill Torlin, right? You, They were like fully prepared to turn back and just go i'll pull back i'll pull back a bit more than that even interesting question is more i think i've kind of communicated generally the way i I plan stuff as dm is i don't like plan for some result i usually just kind of like create an encounter let you guys engage with it and then wherever chips fall is where they fall kind of thing so i had no plan if torlin was going to die um I'm okay with character death. Um, you know, like some of the things that are interesting to play here is one, given after what Torlin did to, gosh, I can't even remember who it was now, but when you pitch the, pitch the sailor over as an offering to Mor- devour, Mor-well. I think you kind Mor-well. of set up Mor-well. that Torlin doing something like this was totally in character. So him, especially getting the ominous, uh, getting the woe result. Yes, Torlin was going to get jumped here. Uh, the result didn't have to be a lethal answer, so that was interesting. Um, See, but by the same, taking him out with my fist just totally did not cross my mind at the time as an option. Yeah, I was just like, uh, it's one way out of this, is, which is totally fine because, again, because of what you did earlier and kind of how you set up Torlin. To me, what he did totally fit with how Torlin. It didn't seem out of character t- for me to Torlin at all. Um, it did put me in the position of. There's three dead bodies now that you're not going to be able to hide. Um, Captain's got to deal with you. Um, So on one token, you could have potentially gotten away without, with less severe punishment, but by the same token, you killed four sailors that were against you. That would have been on the Griffin with you and swayed the odds in a much more significant favor on mutiny. So by doing that, not only, through making friends and getting people on your side for the mutiny, but taking out those fours was a significant scale shifter uh, Interesting. that showed up later on that you guys didn't necessarily know about. So it did pay off. Yeah. Because yeah. all four of those would have been on the side of Master Scourge. Right. And now speaking of mutiny, uh, in my case, I, told, I, I, I thought that was going to go way worse than it did. Uh, I, I like that were that went really well. Like in the sense, the mutiny, like the the idea of of prepping it, like uh, or in the sense of like gathering allies and trying to gather people, 
uh, I also remember there was this betray card that I don't know who played it, but uh, that people <laughs> that that person wasn't like really intelligent in doing so in that moment like that, <laughs> like to have a betray card during a mutiny to play effect. That that was totally. Uh, uh, I can't seem stupid. to remember who did it either. No, I don't remember as well. Uh, but anyway, um, it went really well, uh, at least for my expectations, uh, which is which is really nice. So in that sense, positive. Well, I'm not one of those DMs that wants to make scenes challenging and hard, no matter what. If you guys come up with a good plan, to me, the reward is that you guys came up with a good plan. And I thought overall your your plan for the guy the mutiny was pretty well thought out and planned, and you had some good roles for the most part until things really started. And so, let let you succeed with a good plan. I think the big the big one that I thought I thought the majestic Griffin was going to have Syrian refugees on it. I thought it was just going to be like chock mm. full of Syrians, and wow. you know put us in the trolley, like not quite the trolley problem, but definitely a situation where we're being tasked and, you know, we're really under orders to, uh, to fight against our own. Um, and then it would have been a question of, is this, is this mutiny time? Because the, depending on how many people were on the Griffin, we have to make a real quick tactical assessment of, do we switch sides here and try and, and knock out one of the strongest, uh pirates in the lazar principalities throw the whole area open up a giant power vacuum um there i thought there was a lot of stuff that could happen and that's why a few sessions earlier i remember it was kind of just an offhanded comment about something like mika rockface survived a spear like through her heart or something something like true pirate tall tale like arabian knights level epic character stuff and i was like she has to have a weakness there has to be some like demon or fey spirit that she bargained with and if you turn around clockwise three times before striking her with cold wrought iron then that's what does it and then she bursts into a million pieces um and obviously none of that is how that shook out but um we did wind up taking the Griffin, which, which was something that I kind of assumed would happen. But uh, I, I definitely thought there, there were going to be a little bit different situation going on there. So that's uh, I'm, I'm super happy with what, uh, with what shook out um, and how it's going to affect stuff moving forward, uh, turning season two, basically into looking now for, for Syrians and, and people of talent. Maybe getting a bit ahead with my questions, but I want like the mutiny, Philip. That you did you have like an expectation, an idea, as a, a period of time, an opportunity that you created, or you thought that that okay, they will take this opportunity for immunity, like the, the mutiny, like they will. Did you have any like you consider the idea of we doing the mutiny thing like do, on the Storm River? Uh, just like i don't know well um i tried to telegraph pretty strongly don't do that that was why yeah, I, 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 I was messaged ellie uh because especially at that time with like everybody awake and on deck if she is like gonna go after people to save torlin um i don't know any other way than you would have all died 
I really yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was quite. That was quite a, like Mika's, the, the, Mika's you know, like, tough. Rovis is really tough. I mean, and then yeah, you yeah. would also have Mr. Lagra there at you know with a couple other wild cards. You guys and a lot of your friends wouldn't have jumped under your side in a situation like that because of how numbered they would have been and all that because it would have messed a lot of stuff. I up. think so that was all yeah. of our expectations. That, no. That was gonna be uh, like like on Assassin's Creed, like to go far from the like the line when you desynchronize your character and then you have to start <laughs> over, like kind of like that, that would be like that that thing, right? It's a time loop, like or the like the like the map that turns red and then you die. Yeah. However, having said that, um, pretty much it's kind of like the whole part of the whole first, you know, whole three quarters of season one. All your actions had an impact on the mutant, you know. So a mutiny. Under Master Scourge was how this whole thing was always going to end. And the real question was, when is it going to happen? How many people do you have on your side? And how many people do you have against you? Those were the only questions, right? So if you guys didn't make friends, mutiny is so much harder. Um, Torlin taking out those five people loyal to Scourge. That was a significant scale shifter. Um, and it was, it was certainly going to end that if you hadn't started the mutiny yet, when you were coming back from bone wreck, master scourge was going to take you out before you got back to the ship. Mm. So I, I actually, the, the timing of the mutiny actually worked very well in your favor, because if you wait for that moment, you're, the mutiny is basically happening under master scourge's terms rather than happening under your terms. I definitely remember there was a scene right before we attacked the majestic Griffin where Russ and Aretta were standing there. And I think I failed a persuasion check. Um, I tried for like one last influence and it was just like, yeah, Russ is going to be sulky here for a while. And it's like, why is Russ sulky? And I was like, cause he definitely is 100% convinced he's going to have to kill Aretta during this boarding action after they've spent a few, a few scenes finally like getting to know each other through hog lob and, and through just kind of like, having a little bit of, of friendly competition banter back and forth. But that scene was definitely me looking ahead at the majestic Griffin and going, there's going to be a mutiny here. This is where it's all going to turn tides. And if I don't convince Aretta to join our side, I'm going to be staring at her corpse within a session or two. And that's why, like, I, I couldn't find a good way to articulate that or a good way to, to like say that without quite giving the, the game away. Um, so that's why I was just like, yeah, Russ is sulky. That's that's really cool, like like a really cool like background thing that was happening, like in Russ's head. Like she survived um, though. I she believe. did survive. Yeah, she did. Um, we did we, survive. We managed to get her to uh to surrender in the the cargo hold. So. She surrendered. Um, Dana, if I recall, got a really good uh persuasion check to convince all the whole cloud reaver holdouts except slippery sill at the time to at least help out with the storm uh interestingly enough i don't know if you guys remember um aretta uh spoke out to question against dana's announcement to the crew that we were going to go look for Tamroth and Sandara. She didn't see why we shouldn't leave them behind. You know, they're they're weak. They got got. It's not our problem. So that's, you know, that's potentially a a scene for Dana at least, um, at least off camera, kind of next time around, that final, are you staying on the ship or not? Because if you're staying on the ship, you need an attitude change, ma'am. <laughs> so that'll be interesting. There's 
that is an interesting point of contention for the next few sessions is, and I don't think it's even something that Torlin and Dana have really addressed in the open air with Truco and Rusko is this idea of let's go try and do something for Sirens and the Principalities. Oh, yeah. No, I fully intend that to be a scene that happens in episode one. So a lot of the crew, I expect we may be switching out at at the nearest landing point. Yeah, we'll we'll see what plays out. Unless we talk them talk them into into it mm-hmm. without being serious but that's to be seen mm-hmm. next question what do we got next last one from kkrp from similar kind of debate about characters uh do each of you have a favorite npc member of the crew owlbear 100 it's owlbear ah <laughs> oh, you beat me to it <laughs> i thought I mean, sonara uh, quinn was your best girl Yes, she she became it, and uh, and Sandara kind of became my favorite um, member of the crew, the NBC member of the crew. Um, after after the the majestic Griffin got taken, there was that scene where they had on the deck, and Ruskell was going like full white knight and was like, "Hey, you know, checking in, um, like." thinking this might have been her first combat maybe there's some combat stress there and she she met him at the door and was like hold up i'm a pirate or like i grew up in the lazar and and the i think the exchange was something russ very naive was like yeah you know pirate piracy is bad people shouldn't want to be pirates and she's like you're in the lazar buddy everybody wants to be pirates here that's kind of our thing and it was just a big paradigm shift where like this is not the jrpg white mage she might be the person with the healing spell and the healing ability, but she is not the the castle princess. She is not the the damsel. Uh, I mean, she did wind up becoming a damsel in distress, uh, coincidentally. But, um, but between that and like, and then something else actually kind of clicked later for me, where it was like the very first thing that Sandara did was commit the same exact crime that got Jake's magpie keelhauled. She stole from the quartermaster. Like she is not the kind, innocent, you know, princess healing white mage girl that Russ had this mental image of her as. And Mm -hmm. that kind of shook a lot of both Russ's and my paradigms um, in terms of like what this story and this setting in particular is in a really neat way. And so, yeah, Sandara is definitely my favorite, but I got to give a shout out to my boy, Owlbear. <laughs> For me, it's, it's got to be, well, really there's two. I mean, there's Rosie Cuswell because uh, it's, everybody loves the, the extremely belligerent halfling. Uh, but Sandara is, is number one as well. And slightly different reasons is because for Torlin, she kind of represents this image of, of Dana as what rem- Torlin remembers from Dana being a young girl. Um, she's very boisterous, very, but also still somebody that he thinks he needs to protect. Um, and she does the right thing. And, Initially, he was not very trusting of her intentions because everybody wants something on a pirate ship, right? And then 
partially thanks to Phil's uh, pretty amazing speech that he gave from her perspective. I was like, cool character. I believe uh, Storm Reaver, I believe. I have to say, um, Cutgrog, uh, Cut, uh, Cutthroat Grog, Grunk, uh, it's Grog. Yeah, it was, I, I really love the interactions that, I mean, Truco didn't had that much interactions with, uh, with her, but everyone else kind of had it. And, and, and it was really fun to see that to the point where I, when I knew that, uh, she wouldn't go to the, uh, mighty Griffin. I was a bit sad about it. I did, I, I did like the, uh, the like laugh at the, at everyone's, uh, I don't know. It's like kind of like that. That seems like ah, how do you how do you do do this stupid thing? Why do you do this? Like <laughs> I don't know. I like this this concept of of the character just like being pace and and like mockery uh, towards everyone. At the same time, selling things and just being like a kind of a a, pers- a necessity on the ship to to accommodate things. So you have to interact with her, uh, which is was really nice. Wow, that's interesting. Uh- Grok was definitely my least favorite NPC by a mile. Had she come over to the Griffin, uh, uh, Dana would be firing her at Ricky's <laughs> webs. Uh, she was my least favorite by a lot, uh, you know, because of that, that clash of, um, you know, here is someone who on the one hand, you know, talks about, yeah, you know, having standards and having honor and, you know, being friendly and stuff, but was just this uh, straight up opportunist, you know, that persistent line, if I'm running a business here was, you know, just for me, this uh, really, yeah, nobody, you're just, uh, you're just a common thief who's hiding behind following orders to, to be a thief. And that did not, and that did not drop with me. So yeah, she was she was going to get the boot had she had she come over to the Griffin. Um, my favorite NPC is uh, is Dana's old friend Fishguts. Um, really kind of really kind of cool how that all wound up. You know, where in uh, in episode one we got assigned our duties that we would have for the remainder of our time on the Stormweaver. And Mr. Lagre, you know, goes down the line demanding if anyone knows how to cook. And it was this race of not it, not it, not it. And I was like, well, you, Dana, Dana grew up on a farm. She knows how to make a meal. Yeah, sure. I know how to cook. And there were there were a lot of things I wow, I really wound up enjoying by being uh, the different interactions that position afforded. But fish guts, fish guts was just is just a fantastic, fantastic character for me, um, you know, to latch on to, to want to help because the more we had conversations, um, the more, you know, eventually came out that he had been the head chef at one of the top restaurants, you know, the finest restaurants in Regal Port that he'd, uh, lost the cards to make a rock face herself and the stake had been his life and his freedom and ever since then you know he'd been effectively her slave aboard the storm weaver with uh you know stuck in this crappy kitchen with crappy food serving crappy people and 
he had just run out of hope and that's why he was excessively drunk all the time. And, you know, I remember one of the days he was sober when I, you know, we started getting that sense of which way the wind was going to blow, having this conversation about like, hey, you know, everyone on the ship likes to spin me a line about how something's only yours so long as you can keep it. Well, you know, maybe Mika Rockface can't keep you. You know, what if I took you from her? And Fish Guts just laughed in my face because you know, he he could not see that happening ever. So when he came over uh, to the Griffin and then, uh, then the mutiny happened and all of a sudden he was free. Um, you know, I haven't really had the chance to have a conversation with him since because it was just go, go, go out, you know, for the remaining five or six sessions after that. But, you know, having, you know, having this, this arc of the character who, uh, you know, who needs something to live for. And Dana's, you know, very much Dana's concept, again, with some of her other hindrances, uh, including her vow hindrance, is to help other people she cares about achieve their goals and achieve their dreams and and prosper and thrive. So Fish Guts, you know, all the interactions I had with him on the Storm Reaver was a concrete way to bring that forward into the game and it you know it went well and i hope he uh i hope he stays on the crew and i want to know what made him so desperate for that money that he used his own life as the stake in the pot when he didn't have enough money left to that because that that is the story and maybe, maybe a it's lobster a in the pot you know, and may, you know, maybe that's a quest. What did uh, you know? What was Fish Guts so desperate to gain that he was willing to risk his life and his freedom? So yeah. So yes, we will certainly be visiting the Armored Lobster in Regalport at some point. We gotta, we gotta find out. I want to see if Fish Guts was given the opportunity if he would leave a life of piracy and go back to his uh, his previous employment i mean he might and if he did that would be something uh you know dana would miss him very much but that's something behind a hundred percent to help him get his life back if that would you know if he wanted that life back is the armored lobster just like a a, like a red lobster with the serial numbers filed off no it's a fine dining (laughs) establishment it is it is like the local michelin star in regalport our boy oh. Fish Guts has layers. Mm. So like here's an a question from... Uh, Thank you, Leland, for all those amazing questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Artemar on Discord, are there any big rule changes or mechanical stuff that you edit out to make better radio podcast, I guess? How different is playing a podcast game to unrecorded kitchen table play? Well, I think the first half of that question is, is going to largely go to Phil and Michael both for, uh, you know, for rule alterations and because Michael does all of the audio editing for, for the show. Well, I was about to say, Ellie, you want to answer that question? <laughs> How uh, would so, I answer that question? <laughs> it's just a joke. The As far as the audio goes, there's certainly some things that we edit out. Um, a lot of it is just material where it's 
us discussing things about tech issues that aren't related to game rules. We leave the game rules in, discussion of game rules, because we think that it might be useful to somebody who is a beginner to Savage Worlds to uh, get to see some of the adjudication going on. And But if we're just having some issues with Foundry, which is a virtual tabletop we're using, I'll try and edit some of that stuff out. And certainly the editing process has is, is evolved over time. So initially, the first few episodes, all I did was some minor modifications on Audacity and, and put some royalty-free music over it. Uh, but it's gotten a little bit more involved over the last, you know, seven or so episodes. As far as rule changes, mechanical stuff, um, really nothing. When we decided to do this, uh, we decided to do it because there is there's really so little Savage World content out there. Um, and I think we've got a good table, um, play a good game and stuff. So I thought I'd share and create some content for the community. But one of the things that we decided to go on into it is that um, we wanted to play our game and then just kind of record it and go from that. And if, that if we have to change our game significantly to a way that we as players don't like, me as the DM don't like, we don't want to do this. Um, and so I think for the most part, we've, we've done really well just playing our game. We just happen to be recording it. I think we're mindful of certain areas, but it's not rule changes or anything, but like calling out uh, roll numbers. That's something that took us a couple episodes to really realize. So it's like, oh, people can't see our roles, you know, and then hearing some comments from the community again about the lack of Savage Worlds material. It's kind of like, oh, there's some people that are interested in Savage Worlds. So maybe at certain times, I should explain the rules again for something that we're doing in a way that I wouldn't normally do anymore because the players kind of know what's going on, but I'm explaining it more for the listeners so they can kind of know what's going on and how some of the rules come into play. That's, I think that really that's the only rules or mechanical stuff that we do differently. Um, nothing else I've changed just because we're podcasting it. It's just what we're doing really. Yeah. Yeah. Having, um, having previously played in in a year-long campaign before we rolled into this one and uh phil was the dm michael and ernesto were in that campaign as well and yeah that was that was always at the heart of the podcast discussion it was something phil had wanted to do actually do for quite a long time he proposed it I think I think you first proposed it like a third of the way through Seekers of the Ashen Crown. And at the time we had a player who uh was was really not on board with it. And um, you know, so that yeah, you know, that conversation ended there because our you know, our game together, sorry guys, listeners, our game together comes first. Um, you know, that we're you know, we're friends. This is our this is our fun. And you know, without everyone on board podcasting wasn't an option um obviously things changed in that respect and here we are and uh yeah you know when it comes to things like doing voices or aspects of you know acting and role playing or other sorts of interactions at the table yeah um nothing's nothing's changed in that regard in you know in the sense of thinking about putting on a performance, um, you know, so I'm, I'm delighted that, <laughs> that people uh, in, enjoy what we bring to the table just by, 
bringing what we bring to the table. That's incredibly, incredibly cool. Um, Something I did realize just earlier today about what changes mechanically do we make to um, to accommodate for this, the calling out the roles thing. Uh, we play on Foundry because we are scattered um, all over the place from each other. So in the chat window on Foundry, we can all see each other's roles. We don't need to call out a role for everyone else at the table to know what we got. But if you're playing in person, you you do have to do that because you just have your dice in your tray in front of you and the person two seats down has no idea what you rolled. So I thought that was kind of funny that, you know, as um, transitioning into podcasting, we have to start calling our roles just like you would do no at table, an yeah. in-person table. It's actually yeah. quite beneficial. I, I, I'm I sure didn't thought of that, yeah. It's quite beneficial for the person who is DMing as well. And I try and get my players to do it uh, at the table that I run because, you know, unless I've got three or four screens up and I'm running online, I'm not going to always have the chat window with the dice rolls there. So if everybody's in the habit of calling out their dice rolls, then I can be multitasking. Uh, so it actually speeds the game up a little bit as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that definitely too. It is helpful to me as DM not having to fish for rolls, especially especially those times where I'm asking everybody to roll and there's mm. a number of bennies that get dropped in it. I mean, whoever rolls first Ooh. is usually always scrolled up past my visible screen, anyways. And the- I do want to add real quick. There is actually a way in which uh, doing the podcast has has improved my my gameplay and roleplay to a certain extent because um, you know I do I do the weekly recaps on the blog you know translating the session into narrative form taking a look behind at the mechanics of of stuff and during Secrets of the Ashen Crown when we weren't recording that meant I had to be taking extensive notes all session long and constantly splitting my attention between the game and writing notes and so now. I'm free to not do that. I just listen to the recording every week and then I'm free to, uh, to play without distractions. It's really a fantastic, uh, unexpected side effect. That is true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the podcast thing that didn't, hasn't detracted me from making faces whenever I, I'm surprised for whatever you guys do. So that's the thing the, the listeners can't see, but it's, it's really, really nice to, see everyone's face and everyone's like uh interaction uh too um so i mean besides that uh everything else i i I didn't feel any difference between going from last campaign into this because of the podcast so which is pretty cool uh, yeah, um, quick shout outs just to the the folks who developed the the Savage Worlds and the Dice So Nice modules for for Foundry because like it's I, I've definitely seen the arguments about like, oh, well, if you're rolling dice virtually, you don't get that same thrill of like watching dice ace and, and re-rolling them. But the way that we have it set up, we actually can in real time watch that occur. And even though it automatically, you know, re-rolls if a dice aces, we can still see, you know, oh yeah, my wild die aced here comes another one right on it and we've got cool little dice effects sometimes they i think i can hear the audio bleeding through into the the recording um so there's still some really cool stuff going on we haven't lost any of that i think um and it's because of the folks who developed those modules 
as well as the the foundry based yeah, foundry. That, yeah i mean that um, whole system it, it allows at least for me it allows me to play with you guys because yeah it would have been a case i mean we could like just roll that i have my dice here so we could play it like in the more old-fashioned way but still the dice effects are are nice to have i intentionally record those separately from our audio stream on zoom just so i can put that in after the fact uh, i think it does improve the, the listening experience a little bit um the other thing that's really nice about playing online as opposed to around the kitchen table is especially in savage worlds i can't imagine trying to keep track of all the modifiers that get uh, thrown yeah. around uh at a tabletop as opposed to having foundry track it for us it would be really tough for me to run run the game if I was I run Savage Worlds twice at this point. So, and thank God Foundry was there to help me along. Yeah, if if anything, this isn't necessarily a podcast thing so much as it's just a, a virtual tabletop thing. But uh, I've gotten really lazy in the sense that like, and you you might hear this a couple times like when we're having a few technical difficulties with Foundry, where it's like, oh my god, my my cutlass okay. or my my weapon isn't rolling. How do I actually <laughs> do, do I combat <laughs> in this ga- in this game? Yeah. Um, and it's it's not in it's not that it's particularly difficult. It's just that we've had it so easy. Literally, click button, swing so receive bacon um it's that's a good point if you were doing it at the table you'd probably have it down pretty quickly yeah and yeah uh, Yeah, the modifiers worlds are much easier than than 5e and Mm -hmm. oodles better than pathfinder um i will say one of the things that um it's been a little not it's been interesting especially like the start of the episodes and the end of the episodes, like talking to people who aren't on the screen, who will be listening to this later has been something that I've, it's taken me some time to get into and, and uh, get comfortable with and everything. Uh, but there is an aspect, I, I really can't say tangibly how, um, but there's a part of me that just kind of likes that there's this audience listening. To me, it's, it is contributing to the game for me in a way that I really can't describe or, or understand. Um, and I certainly want to thank Ellie for really probably being the huge factor in that. It's, it's your blog for Seekers of the Ashen Crown. I mean, personally, I think it's changed the whole Game Tales channel in the Eberron Discord channel, period. Because <laughs> um, people weren't telling stories like, like they are now before you started doing it. Um, and then people started following. And so when we started, there was actually a bunch of people that were interested because they've been following your writing. They continue to follow the writing. And and our audience isn't exclusively podcasts. There are people who just go and just read it like they've been doing. Um, and it's kind of cool to have that audience and the people. I mean, especially after the first couple episodes, I know you're not in the discords much, Truco, but uh, Ernesto, I should say. But Truco is an incredibly <laughs> well-loved character. Um, you know, he's almost got a following like Corbus has. I mean, seriously. <laughs> oh, not I, this again. I'm going to, uh, um, hopefully I can disappoint. What's Corbus? <laughs> yeah, what, what is a Corbus? No, a Corbus. Asked, no, everyone asks yeah. how is Corbus. You guys are, you guys are incorrigible. Um, you know, to, to quickly speak to uh, Phil, that, that sense of, you know, kind of intangible satisfaction of making this thing that, that you know, to share that other people are enjoying that ties back a lot into why I went all in um, 
why I went all in on the blog was because as a creative person, I the greatest satisfaction for me in making something is to be able to share it with others and enjoy it together and bring something to the community and and talk about it. So, you know, I already had that with the blog and I think it's awesome that you all have that now to whatever degree you choose to engage with it. It's there, it's here and we can all share in it now. Um, the other question, one of the other questions from our listeners, we'll save till later because it kind of sounds like it's going to happen in season two. So we'll bookmark that for a little bit. Um, I'd like to know what was your, what was your either favorite or one of your favorite moments in season one? Well, this one's going to be easy for me because one of the things that winds up getting taken out of the audio, because it's usually happening after the conclusion of the session that we do uh, at some point, Kevin started doing this sort of, here was my favorite moment of the session and uh, usually involving another character, which is, I think, a great thing to do. And so uh, I was thinking about that as I was editing the audio for our conclusion of season one last week. And uh, it didn't occur to me while I was experiencing the time, but Dana's speech at the end of it was pretty fantastic. And so I'll give... Ellie props to, for that. Um, I'm not sure if that's my favorite moment of the old campaign, but uh, I'm not thinking too hard on this. It was a pretty good one. <laughs> Mine was was actually called out by one of the listeners. And again, I just got to shout out any time that Truco tries to explain things to Owlbear <laughs> is, is just such... They're both good care. They're both such fantastic characters and scenes with those two. They like become more than the sum of their parts. It's, it's always just a yeah, chaotic they, joy of, they have, they have a couple of therapy sessions, uh, uh, pending to have maybe at some point. I just love the idea that like Owlbear thinks he's a Truco whisperer and like he understands you in the way that like I understand my kitten when she tries to talk to me. She's clearly saying something and I'm like, oh, I totally get it. I don't get it. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, there's so many moments uh, like there's a couple of things that happened in the in the the whole uh, like. The first time we did like a, a naval battle with with another ship, uh, the whole uh, like uh, revelation of Dana's uh, dragon mark, uh, the the sudden like uh, I don't I believe you like Rust used Kevin used an adventure card and had like this amazing spell that made like a wall fire uh, across the the ship. Uh, I, I love that moment. Every time Rust has uh, uh, like either the background questions or the recap, uh, I don't know. I mean, did, did you expect Rust to be an amazing storyteller? I have to say, I, like, no. <laughs> because, I mean, I, because, I, I, because, I love I mean, using his voice. In, so yeah, yeah, um, it's it's uh, really cool. I mean, the whole throwing Norwal. Uh, I also have like you already answered my question, Michael. But I was going to ask you uh, 
if you like do you thought in the beginning that you will make Tolan uh like a, a worshiper of the devourer or was like that that was the tipping point into uh well no i didn't think i would make him a worshiper of the devourer because you he were, isn't still you were hey ow or okay 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 it's easy so to look at him that way though I will. Con- I will well, see. Actually, I mean, in the surface, that scene in particular, if you read Keith Baker's latest blog article, Torlin, I mean, I think Torlin like fits that to a T. It's like people don't worship the Devourer because the Devourer takes what it's wants. They try to placate him. Yeah, you yeah. placate the Devourer so that when the Devourer hits you, it's not mm-hmm. as bad. And that totally was that. That's not somebody who worships the Devourer. That's like. Shit, we're in the storm. Somebody's overboard. We're about to get screwed if the devourer does not get a sacrifice. So yeah. he's an it's, ass. <laughs> it's observation. That, that was one not of my worship. favorite moments too, because I think all of I, I was surprised too, but I think all of us were just like, you do what? <laughs> um, and and I kind of understood that concept a little bit already about like you just placate the devourer and it was very just like devourer needs to do, man. I mean, somebody's got to be sacrificed to save us from the storm and it's not going to be Giffer. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. yeah, Under uh, that perspective, makes sense, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And speaking Uh, of, uh, speaking of Keith's article on the devourer, Noah. Shout out to Keith for shouting out Kevin's praise his watery deepness speech. <laughs> my man. Um, you know, my my favorite moment of season one was I guess you'd call it a compound moment because it, it spanned across um it spanned across three episodes, but it was kind of effectively one moment, starting in uh, episode 10, which was actually a a duet with just Kevin and myself when uh when Michael and Ernesto weren't able to be there and Kevin proposed that Russ and Dana have like a little, you know, last war flashback, some sort of, you know, interaction, weaving that in. Um, what wound up happening was at that point, both Dana and myself were desperate to get her Tago knife back. She didn't know how to do it. I, as a player, had no idea how to do it without severely violating fundamental things about her character. And um, Russ... You know, Russ helped her out first at the gambling table and second in the next episode, which I wasn't there for because I'd gone uh, I'd gone out to PAX Unplugged a few days early, uh, just ahead of Kevin. Um, so I wasn't there that episode. And he decided to, you know, have Russ casually mention to Truco that, uh, you know, uh, you know, Miss Dana's got, you know, she's got something she needs back from the quartermaster. And, you know, I could just see on the recording, you know, Ernesto's eyes light up at the thought of getting to steal some stuff. But his response was, well, you know, Miss Miss Dana's been kind to me. You know, not a lot of people are kind to me. So, yeah, and I get to steal stuff. I am in. And, uh, yeah, he he went. He had his little prowl through the quartermaster's stole. He uh, stole store. <laughs> he found Dana's Tago knife, and the uh, the next week, when we were all back together, um, you know, Truco presented to her, it to her with this wonderful story of how hard it had been, and how brave he had been, and skilled he'd been in retrieving it, and what you know, there were there were two things 
that really made that my favorite, that kind of arc, my favorite moment. Um, one as a player, it was just like, I don't want to embarrass you guys, but it was just like really sweet that the week I was gone, you know, you guys kind of took it on yourselves to solve this problem. I was having a really hard time solving. Um, and then then Russ and Torlin also had a wonderful interaction about it, which you can see on the bonus clip for that episode. Um, and then in character, uh, that was, in my opinion, a turning point, not just for Dana, but for the party as well, because up to that point, it had been so hard to to come together because of the you know the structure in which the jobs on the storm weaver kept us apart and then at night people were off doing their own thing russ usually went to bed early you know there there just wasn't a lot of connection within the party until for me until that moment where you know we sat down and truco uh did something else you know outside of himself and dana formally you know took him into the fold, basically, you know, into this circle that she had expanded now to Russ and expanded now to Torlin. And it was, okay, you know, we're, we're a team now. We, you guys are all right. We're in this together. So whatever happens next, we are doing this together. Um, yeah. It's my favorite moment. Cause for me, that was, that was the turning point of the party becoming the party. And I wasn't there for half of it. <laughs> that was all you guys. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah, well, it's always interesting to like, I, it's not that I want to do it, of course, but to miss a, se a session and then come back and then you find uh, finding like, oh, this happened. Like, I remember uh, in my case, at least like the last session that I, that I missed and then getting back and then, oh, Sandara is missing. And we like, and I was like, what the f like so many things happened and how, and did, just you having the how did you guys lose Sandara? <laughs> like that's the sweetest character that we have in the whole crew and you guys lose it how and and i know that that was really it's really nice that like that surprise of what happened like and then having that reaction which is um really nice what about you phil what was your favorite moment of Season one. I kind of touched on pitching Narwhal over the thing was oh yeah, yeah one yeah. of my favorite moments. Yeah. Uh I loved the first Truco Albert therapy session. That was <laughs> oh man, I laughed so hard during that. Um few big cuddly creatures. Yeah. Um one just a name though. Yeah. Also also to add every interaction with Scourge, Scourge was like the whole uh like um just being and I, that was one question that i wanted to ask you uh philip uh like di did you expect lager and scourge to be like really hated by by the party I, I mean i guess that was your intention right yeah i wanted to set them up as the, uh, yeah mika rockface in the canon is this you know despicable pirate type thing i didn't want her to be the focus of your enmity Yeah, particularly wanted uh, wow. Scourge and Lagra to be the focus of your hatred, particularly because at least my plan with the mutiny is the mutiny was going to happen under them, not under Rockface. Right. Um, right. So uh, that was my goal. And I, 
it was clear that I accomplished that that made yeah, you I mean, think from, that. from Truco's perspective, yes, you succeeded greatly. I mean, uh, I have yeah, to say, so but yeah, also, uh, I, I don't know if anyone else has a, a favorite, another favorite moment, uh, that wants to share. Uh, I have a question for Philip. Um, but no, my question was if, if you consider at any point that we were instead of a mutiny getting to ally with Mika Rockface, or there was any possibility of that, like if we earn the mighty Griffin by merit instead of the other way, I guess that that would, that would have been like really far, wouldn't it? Um, that, that could still happen. Let's just go sail for uh, oh, we can do we can bring it back. Because it's hey. called Crag. I mean, actually, I, I would have to say that I would not, I would not rule that out as a possibility. However, that would require you being the kind of pirates that it didn't sound like none any of you wanted to be. I am, of course. Yeah, I am actually this much surprised that the love interest card was not played on Mika Rockface. I mean, that it wasn't played at all in season one, but if it was going to be played at all, I mean, you might as well go for broke at that point. I mean, did you guys ever did uh, any, yeah, that, draw that? that? Yeah. I, I drew it once. And I, never drew I actually drew it. How dare you? I had no NPCs at the time I wanted to play it on. The Storm Reaver is a greasy, gross place full of nasty, cruel people. But uh, should it I mean, except for fish guts, he's all right. But you know, if if it comes up again, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, I think don't, I might I don't have had a plan oh. for using it when I drew it, but then, like, to influence uh, a swab or something along those lines. I don't know how the card is written. It it can be used on another character, like to create Only a love NPC, interest. Use it on NPCs, but it's... NPCs on you or NPCs no. on other players. No, you. You use you. it on an NPC for you yourself to fall. Oh, okay. For them to oh, fall. Okay. But you can really give a... it to another player. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. It's really a horrifying concept. I mean, we're basically as players dipping our grubby paws into the game world and messing around with NPCs' minds and just <laughs> yeah, no, the, causing yeah, the, enchantment magic on them. The session yeah. I I got that card was actually the the week we took. It was either the week before, I think the week right after our when we wound up on the Majestic Griffin and I'd previously played a Benny to to say that there was someone I knew on board. And I was I, I considered playing playing the card on it now, but it wasn't the time. I mean, I don't mind that much you guys sticking your grubby paws and NPC stuff and, and setting up <laughs> scenes. You know, I, I mean I think Ah, uh, it wasn't after the last session, but the session before that, we kind of ended up in this discussion uh, after we stopped recording. But it's kind of like I, I'm just getting more and more okay and liking the idea of you all like diving into some storytelling of things that are going on uh, to help take the, take it away from me. I, I don't I don't have to completely paint every scene, um, you know, and that's where I believe these tabletop RPGs are very much collaborative storytelling um and i really like that aspect uh and i think it's in large part because the savage worlds has kind of helped me shift that mindset to focus more on the story at the table uh rather than the mechanics of what's going on uh has allowed me to really kind of shift my thinking like this and, and move more towards this in a way that i'm enjoying more 
Um, I think betterness. I'm hope, hoping it's creating some stories that you all enjoy. Yeah, definitely. I have a couple of questions more. A couple, just a couple. One first to to. I don't know. If, I don't know if we have more questions from the viewers or from. No, no, we'll get to that. One, there was one Phil wanted to get to, which I, yeah. I do want to dip into at some which point before that? we end. Hmm? Which one's that? Uh, the ones about favorite character moments. Yeah, what's the, what's the favorite moment that you had for your character? Oh. Oh, for your character? Oh, okay. <laughs> you misread that question, huh? <laughs> I, How did you I interpret, said I wanted to double dip. It. Anyways, go ahead, Ernesto. Oh no, no, Mike. Uh, my moment, I guess. Uh, I don't know why combat-wise, uh, when when I did like a triple action, which I never did in the game, and and just took three guys at this in the same turn, throwing knives. That, that was that was a cool moment for me, at least personally, in a mechanical sense. That was cool that, were that you got that triple counterattack too. Oh, that one, that was cool. Yeah, the, completely ineffective each one of them, but still really cool. Yeah, you made up for it with the with the triple action where you incapacitated three NPCs in a single round. So I mean, let's yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say that. Um, I I mean, I've already called out the scene with with Sandara on the deck where Rascal just basically had his entire life and paradigm rocked and was like, oh yeah, we're in the Lazar Principalities. We're not back in in chivalric metrol. Um, but really just anytime I cast a spell with Russ is just such a, a gosh darn joy throwing out uh, thunder waves. I didn't, I thought magic missile was going to be bread and like, and it kind of is my bread and butter, but really breaking out thunder wave is just, it's so juicy every time. And, and the fact that Phil is like, yes, everybody else hears a giant massive thunderclap. It's like, oh, Russ has gone loud um really you know i mean that's how you trap the spell so it is, I mean, yeah yeah that's why trappings are important mm-hmm. and and i'm here for it rascal i there's a, a a great line that uh i think it was right after we took over the griffin where uh where russ just straight up is like i'm not that kind of wizard uh we i think we were talking about ship rolls or something like that but uh, yeah, I, this campaign in particular, because I don't normally play wizards, um, really had me kind of digging into the different aspects of magic and the different schools of magic. Um, and by making Russ specifically an evoker, uh, I think that's shaped his character just as much as, as some other aspects of it, where you can see different class or different schools of wizardry and different focuses of wizardry as like entirely different character classes in a way. Um, but yeah, being an evoker is really fun and spell casting is really fun. I'll keep my answer to this one short because it's pretty similar to the previous one. Um, as far as, and I don't want to self indulge too much. Uh, Probably the little conversation that Dana and Torlin had right after he was tired and exhausted and his emotions were spent going into a fury down into the, uh, down in the hole. One thing that I haven't really done a good job 
with the exception of this one time, is translating into the game and into how I'm describing things, that when Torlin uses his Berserk Edge, um, he is completely spent afterwards and his emotions are totally drained. And so somehow I managed to to narrate that, act that in a satisfying manner with just how he was uh, expressing a moment of weakness to, to Dana. And she also knocked it out of the park with her response. I I love that scene so so much with um because that was that was the first time that again that was also watershed mode for Dana of transitioning into okay crisis mode need to take charge of this situation need to help let's get this done and kind of put um put a lot of other stuff aside so kind of riffing off of that um. My favorite moment uh, for myself, if, for Dana, if I have to nail one down, is the, um, I think it was the second, uh, second episode during the mutiny where Dana was waiting, to, you know, she kind of given it, she'd given any, uh, given everyone their orders, uh, you know, Russ was good to go, she went upstairs to back up Truco if need be. And uh, there was this moment where uh, Truco was spotted. Things were starting to go a little bit south. Someone, uh, you know, someone opened uh, opened a door, came out of a door and was about to yell out an alarm since uh, the pilot had been prevented from ringing the bell. And when that happened, I was just like, all right, I'm going to, you know, interrupt take my turn take this person down just this really you know just this really swift decisive get her done kind of moment and again tying you know tying back into dana emerging as as someone who takes charge especially in a crisis um, and has that capability and has that thought process and you know so as much as she can be really emotional at times that sense of uh, there was a reason why she survived six years on the front. And that moment brought it home and kind of set the stage for, uh, for me, for everything that she did next. Yeah. Your comment there in chat, Ellie, go ahead and go to that. Yeah. I want to call out my favorite moment uh, of someone else's character, which is the moment so much as I guess it is, um, you know, where he starred versus where he ended up. And I think the character arc I've enjoyed most outside of my own um, has been Truco's that's really come into play in the episodes uh, that took place on the island where, you know, Truco is, he's not someone who's going to admit that he's wrong when, you know, when skills come into play or making mistakes or, or anything like that. That's not who he is. You know, he's going to spin that story to make himself look good no matter what, while everyone smiles and nods and says, We know you're BSing us, pal, but you know what? We're gonna humor you because we love you. And but what has really been awesome, Ernesto, that, that has just really stood out to me was even within that, um, Trucos had these moments 
of expressing to the party that he doesn't always have it together. And while he'll, you know, deny screwing up until the cows come home, there were so many moments on the island where he was, you know, agitated or frightened. You know, there was this beautiful, you know, right at the end of the the fight with the Grindelo Queen, when you just start, you know, going like, oh, fuck, that was so scary. I, you know, what's happening? And just, you know, the adrenaline just, you know, as he just started babbling after this, you know, he'd acquit himself, you know, he performed really well in the fight, but that revelation that, yeah, he, it was scary. He didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. And, um, you know, and having that moment with him to be able to say, you know, it's okay. It's okay, man. You're okay. You're okay. You're, you're good. And yeah, I love that uh, complexity you've woven him where, you know, where, yeah, he's, he's having those moments now of showing the others that, you know, he's, he's got big feelings and they're not all just in some way related to arrogance. And I, I really like that. It's, I mean, I really, I really appreciate uh, of you to, to, to notice that. I mean, it's, it's really cool to, to, to it's really cool to, to see that uh, in a way I, I can also play on the sense of he was getting a lot of fatigue by the, the whole situation uh, not yeah, just mechanically, I, but also as a character, just being like really stressed out by everything. Yeah. I just, I just um, wanted to. Okay, when you're stressed out, you you feel vulnerable. Yeah. So and I like want to show thing, vulnerability. So that was that was my reasoning at least. Well, the uh, thing that also really jumped out at me was that when we're getting into these crazy fights, into these really kind of horrific situations, with you know blood and guts and imminent mortal danger and really, you know, some really disturbing things happening, uh, you know, body horror, all this, you know, all this kind of stuff. Russ, Dana, and Torlin were all career soldiers. This is nothing they haven't seen before. Truco does not have that experience. He does not have a frame of reference for coping with the with seeing these kinds of horrors so that you know extra jumped out at me as being as being so wonderful for you to express that in him and for you know other characters like data to be able to to draw on their experience of having witnessed these horrors and learning how to cope with them and you know passing that on to truco that's that's really cool thank you thank you for for sharing that bit um yeah uh, i also wanted to ask a question uh for dana uh about i mean at least my favorite moment from dana which was like the revelation of the dragon mark uh and i don't know how much did you prep that how much did you thought of that or you you like like that was at the character conception or did you like uh like you were for a mechanical aspect and then you realize oh i really like this new shift in my in, in my character story or i don't know what was your reasoning behind that yeah so um so there there were a couple of things that that led to that decision um and this this started like three months before our first session of mourners of lazar um you know like i said my original concept had been a classic spell sword fireball in one hand sword in the other and you know then we um then we had to have that discussion of you guys are you guys are going to get your own ship someone is going to need to be the captain and mechanically they're going you know it would 
be beneficial to everyone for them to be built to be a captain. And I wasn't liking how the spell sword path was was fitting into that. It wasn't fitting into that very well for me in, in a way that would have been that I felt would have been satisfying for to have both elements. So that was when I think it was actually Phil who broached the idea of, well, why don't you do a dragon mark instead? You know, he'd be, he'd been coming up with mechanics for using them in Savage Worlds. And, it, you know, it was a fun thing to explore. And we went back and forth on that for quite a few weeks playing with uh, different builds. At one point I had um, a possible build for a Mark of Passage. I believe we also toyed with Mark of Storm at one point. And, you know, eventually it came down to Mark of the Sentinel because uh, that story, you know, both Dana's uh, backstory of the connection of having fought, you know, fought as a house Denneth mercenary and the story I want to put forward of her being this defender um, that that was the one to take. You know, if I was going to take a dragon mark, that was the one. And I had that planned by the, you know, from session zero, all of that laid out. As for when it would manifest, um, that was, again, a conversation that Phil and I had quite a few times over the course of those first couple of months of gameplay, you know, trying to trying to decide both what would be what kind of situation would make sense because uh lore wise dragon marks manifest under um under experiences of extreme stress is what provokes them you know you don't just like think it and now it happens um so yeah it was what would trigger it one would trick you know when would it be triggered what would be a good point in the story and of course phil didn't want to be you know be giving me hints about where you know he didn't want to give me spoilers about where the story was going um but we were kind of able to get some vibes at one point thought you know maybe it would be cool narratively to have it manifest on uh on the anniversary of the day of mourning which is actually about uh, a week out in the game calendar from where we currently are um and <clears throat> when uh, yeah, when we when we boarded the Griffin, excuse me, there there were a few DMs back and forth. You know, this might be a good time. Let's see what shakes out. You know, I'd I'd love to do it now because I want to have this spell and I you know I want to have these powers. I want to do this as a player and have that in my toolbox to mess with. But I have to wait till the time is right and. It was setting up for the time to not be right at all. You know, like Truco went in and, you know, scrambled up into the rigging and wreck phase. You know, um, Torlin ran in and just started destroying everyone in sight. He didn't need any protecting either. Um, so then when Russ went in and traded his wand for his Tago knife and found himself, uh, at the end of a bad roll on his part and a lucky roll on his opponent's part, uh, that was that was the opening I needed for it to be time. I had kind of actually wanted um, wanted to particularly manifest defending Russ for that story aspect because defending Torlin would just be like the the boring easy story. Um, defending Truco, you know, he's 
he doesn't stay close enough in, you know, in a fight for, you know, he, he's scrambling off doing his own thing. That'd be a lot harder to work in. And, you know, with, um, with Russ and Dana having made that connection a few episodes earlier, the revelation that they had met before on the field of battle, that he'd, uh, that he'd done her great service um, with neither of them knowing at the time that, yeah, having, having that combination of uh, everyone's dice, you know, with Ernesto and Michael's dice being very lucky and Kevin's dice being less lucky and Phil's dice being quite lucky, everything fell into place for, all right, this, is, this gets to happen now. Um, the, the only thing I really didn't plan, um, to make a firm decision ahead of time was where on her body would manifest. Originally, I'd wanted it to be on the inside of her left forearm. That is her sword arm. And the idea was that, you know, she could casually roll up her sleeve to make a point or that, you know, if, uh, if you picked the wrong fight, that mark was the last thing you would see kind of, you know, kind of story. And Phil said, made, made an offhand remark about how, you know, he, anytime he's ever had a player with a dragon mark, they've always put somewhere they can hide it. You know, I'd love to see, you know, for once someone just have it there on their face where they can't hide it. And I just went, Oh no, but then I don't have any control of who sees it or who doesn't. And his response was, but that gives you control over how you can react because you know they're going to see it. And I, I still wasn't entirely on board with that, but the bug was in my ear. And I didn't declare that until it happened in that moment in the game. And to some degree surprised myself, but I'm really happy with that. And I have no regrets. Yeah. That's really bad of you, Philip, to plant that. Oh, yeah, that I never planned ideas in no. players' heads. No, no, you never, 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 never. never. Even more so, never for your benefit, right? <laughs> for the, the DM's benefit. But anyway. It's not for my benefit. <laughs> well, you know, for kind of the class we had there, you know, is, is this giving up control or is it taking control? Was for me, you know, there, there's still that extent of, uh, it's that paradox, you know, it's there, it can't be hidden. I can't control who sees it and how they react from seeing it. Um, so there's going to be this constant, if uh, there's going to just be this constant state of responding to reactions, which yeah, I don't hate that. That's, that's juicy role playing moments. That's what I'm here for. Um, so yeah, excited to uh, excited to see where that takes me. Any last minute questions about stuff behind the scenes? I have a last one that I wanted sure. to make. Okay, yeah, and it's for for Kevin uh, because it's, it's I don't know it's it's bothered me bothered me since the first session. I don't know why, but it's something that I wanted to ask. Uh, me. What do you got? The, the rust uh, the, the first description that i got from rust or the one that you first made you mentioned a rock that was on your uh, on your leg you had like on your necklace yeah. 
you mm-hmm. had a rock do you remember it's something that yeah i still remember what's up with that what i don't know why but i my mind went to this it, it was it was a such a simple thing but i wanted like oh truco needs to ask for this and i don't know if you have an answer for that i don't know if you want to answer uh, it, it's okay if you don't may i would probably ask in game at some point i wanted to ask in game at some point but i just couldn't find a moment for that um yeah it's uh it's so phil asked us to keep one thing and i could not think of gosh darn anything um so i was like all right well if we're getting all of our gear stolen only two of russ's three spells are trapped with wand use he mage armor is not mage armor is something he can cast without it because it's uh, it's outside of the way that he normally casts spells. It's an abjuration spell. It works a little differently. Um, but he still needs to, as a wizard, uh, do his spellbook reading every morning. So I figured uh, that that's his spell shard, but maybe some sort of either illusion magic or even some kind of mundane, just sort of like, cover up encasing uh got put on it but it's a spell shard um and so we've kind of hand waved this because it's never really come up it's never really been too terribly important uh but russ spends a little bit of time every morning uh reading or kind of meditating on that spell shard uh to make sure that he has his spells prepped um, I'm not really sure how Savage Worlds works with more powers than you have because I know D&D is like you have your spell book and then you have your memorized spells. So you have a large pool and you kind of pull, uh, pull from that to make your, your prepped spell list. Um, but for now, Russ has had to spend some time every, every bit of morning uh, making sure that he has uh, at least mage armor prepped. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's, that's what the rock cool. was. I will probably um, still ask it in game and see what Rust responds to that. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, so, this, this was a weird and specific question to end up with. But anyway. So to uh, looking forward, another question off Twitter from Shane Sangster. Uh which manifest zone are you hoping to wander into? And I think I think the way to answer this is from the player perspective, because I can't imagine necessarily that your character per se are hoping to wander into any particular manifest <laughs> zone. Oh, that would be let's yeah. go into let's go into the most inhospitable areas and in, in everyone. Why not? Um uh Shavarath? Or no, not Shavarath, um Syriana, the plane of air. Uh, well, Irian, Irian's positive energy, and Irian's my second favorite one. Um, Shavrath is the plane of battle. It's Serenia that's the plane. Serenia, yeah, Serenia is uh, probably the one that I would like to go to, uh, especially if we start going towards uh, Ruskell going into the getting back on the saddle and going into air. Um, but Irian, the positive energy plane or closest thing to a positive energy plane, the plane of beginnings, new beginnings. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've always had a lot of fun imagining what that plane is, is like, I think those are my two. I think that, uh, it would be interesting to find out here in the principalities, a 
manifest zone to, yeah, Shavarath, the plane of war. And like, if there was a city built on that or an island, and what if we established a base there or something along those lines? And that would then lead to the development of the uh, folks that have great tactical wit or something along those lines. Um, I haven't, I haven't read up on my exploring Eberron, so I don't recall what all the, all the manifest zone effects of Shabarath are, but I think there's even a place in Karnath that's kind of like that. That's a that's center, a maybe Reckonark. It's like a center of great military out. learning or something along those lines. Well, Dana doesn't have uh, have much interest in wandering into any manifest zones aside from hoping to get back to Sharn one day, which is, of course, built on a, a Serenian manifest zone. Um, but one of the things she uh, kind of one of the rumors she believes are more of conspiracy theories about the principalities is that uh, the the mists of the gray tide look really uncomfortably similar to the mists that ate seer and you know people only certain people can go in the gray tide and come back to tell the story that sounds a bit like a manifest zone to me not entirely sure which one yet but it sounds a bit like a manifest zone and i wouldn't mind checking it out at some point that's not necessarily that may or may not be a manifest zone is there a place that's is there a particular manifest zone you, Ellie, was interested in going into? No, honestly, even as a player, it's never something that's piqued my interest. So, you know, aside from the, the cop-out answer of going back to Sharn, which is built on a manifest zone, I, I really don't have a strong opinion on that. I I mean, if I'm honest, I really don't know much about them, but uh, any any manifest zone that would allow uh a character to either fly either be better at pickpocketing if that <laughs> makes sense i would uh, oh, you know what i would i would pay good money to see or, what truco might do in thalanus i think donby is the one we need to go to then <laughs> oh, oh no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> putting truco oh. in donby would just be Oh God! I'm, I don't know that I'm not understanding this conversation, <laughs> but I, I really, I really want to know now. <laughs> so, so that there you go, Phil. We need to get true coach either Thelonis or Donby stat. Don, Donby is the the plane of uh, law and order. Yeah. Um, Ooh, that, that's that's a contradiction. Yeah, it's the plane Slap of law, order, bureaucracy, etc. Red tape. Truco would love it there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh God, the more I think about it, the more like so many opportunities, like with with just the level of pulp that even we've done just doing a pirate campaign, like Lamania would be fun. Seeing giant whales or, or giant wildlife. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, if I was that, to answer it in character, that would be the one. Yeah. Um or yeah, I would say one going with the illusions or really like really colorful displays. That, that would be really cool. Yeah, too. Um, and the other one, because we are in a campaign of Sirens, a manifest zone to Delura, uh, the plane of dead would just Ooh. be I you know, I'm I'm thinking there might be some content there. <laughs> just putting it out there, possibly. Yeah. Potentially, uh, um, I mean, maybe. Uh, who knows? I, I'm trying yeah. to think. Of, 
where I would like to go. Um, well, Shavrath might be the interesting and fun one just because all the tension and um, everything. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I love the Manifest Zones whole idea. I think that it's brilliant and I like that. I keep on thinking more about how to incorporate them more. Um, is there a particular place and we'll ask this. Is there a particular place you as a player are really interested in going in this next part of the campaign? Yeah. Well, something I I mentioned in character in a backstory a couple of months ago was that uh, one of Dana's old war buddies had always wanted to go to Sterilasker and just like sit at the station and watch the trains go by at the crossroads. And as a player, I would love to go to Starlasker. It's um it's a city there is not a ton of lore about, but lots of just enough to be incredibly interesting. It it is a crossroads. Um it's a place of passage and it's it's often ignored in favor of other Braillish cities such as Sharn and Rote. And uh yeah. I want to go to Starlasker. Now you do know since I use the revives map Rote and Starlasker traded places effectively. Well, can we trade them back for a bit? <laughs> what uh Make- what I've read of Starlasker is that you may not actually like it quite as much as you do, as you think you do, because it's positioned at this hub of, of travel and makes it just like a lot of things in Breland rather rife with corruption. It's kind of oh, one yeah, of those like- places where you want to go get a permit to go and talk to this one person. Well, you're going to have to bounce yourself around town. You're going to have to pay bribes. And everybody's trying to get their their palms greased. Depends what direction we would go with it. But to me, Starlosker has serious Moss Eisley vibes. The places I think I want to go as a player are maybe not this next arc, maybe not seasoned, maybe pushing into like heroic or veteran when we've really got uh, this crew of legend assembled if we survive that long. I'm I'm almost thinking again bigger. I'm going into like Arabian Nights territory. I I'm an unabashed Metrol fanboy, and I love continuing to fill out Metrol in the backstory questions where Rascal gets a chance to kind of revisit those memories. We had some great um, supplementary content from uh, in in fifth edition with Dread Metrol, and uh, and just released on the DMs Guild by. Uh, a member of the Eberron Discord community, Chaos. Uh, we now have the politics of Seer. Um, so we've got some really great stuff on Metrol uh, right now. And considering that like we didn't have anything really until 5th edition, I think it's just a fantastic uh, bed of stories uh, that can come out of that. So I think I that's... Metrol. Hmm? You want to go to Metro? Uh, not now. Uh, but... I'm not quite sure how to break this to you, but um, <laughs> we'll talk after the show. <laughs> and maybe not even directly, uh, but uh, 
you know, we have two characters from, from Metro here. So getting that element of their past and being able to reconcile some of those elements um, might be a really fun epic level arc to, to explore. Uh, well, I had another one, but I can't remember it now. Well, I mean, I like as far that as exploring the Mornland goes, one of the things that we have in our map that we use in this alternate version of Eberron is the canal mm. that goes up from the Scion Sea to Kraken Bay in the southern side of Seer. Oh, yeah. If, a city if, called Seaside. If there's something that makes us have to sail through that canal to get to, to Scion Sea, that'd be like we have no choice. We have to do it. That'd be that'd be pretty pretty epic. I'm just saying. Yeah, it'd yeah, be a shame if the DM was listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully he's paying attention. Yeah, uh, in my case, I mean, I really read uh, a couple of of islands on the Lazar principalities that had caught my attention at the time. Uh, Lord Holland or Lord Holland, I don't know how to pronounce it, but anyway, and the the gnomes there, like the seal the Silargo. Uh, thing the whole like there's kind of a some sort of a cult there that no one knows there's no cult sorry there, there's no there's nothing nothing wrong with Zilargo is the cult the, these are the no's went no we're not giving up our privacy and personal lives for the greater good and complete exposure and deception screw that we're going to live normal lives yeah 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 so I, I I like that that uh, mystery kind of there to some extent, um, and also the hammer, the, the the notion of a big massive earth elemental in the middle of the water, uh, just to be there and have some interaction with it. Uh, that's cool. For for kind of brings player. to mind, uh, gosh, what was its name? The giant morag was it morag? The giant turtle and. Uh, never ending Morag. story. Uh, I would like, I would I like to see a dragon remember. turtle at some point. We're here. That too. That never definitely. That'd be fun. Uh, and I've mentioned it a couple times in my backstory, but I I think I would like to eventually um, re meet up with a hand of plenty wherever it's found its way. Uh, and I'm going to keep working on developing that in backstory questions where I can too. It's just such a, a different kind of ship than you normally expect to see in a place like the Lazar Principalities. All right. And uh, well, with that, let's conclude our fireside chat for tonight, wrapping up season one. Um, I'm looking forward to season two. I'm looking forward to people sharing with us for season two. I think we keep on improving our uh, game and podcast here. So really looking forward to it. Well, I'm Michael. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, I'm Ernesto. Thanks for everyone that submitted a question. Uh, um, thanks for listening so far. I'm Ellie. Don't know what else there is to add to uh, Michael and Ernesto's greetings. So I'll see you in season two. I'm Kevin. It's been a fantastic season one. I'm so happy to be a part of this table and I'm glad that you guys get to share that experience with us. So tune in for season two. Let's go through this together. Let's be bold. I'm your Dungeon Master, Philip. Thank you again for listening. Um, one last reminder, if we are going to take the week off after you get this, we're going to take one week off and then start up season two and see where our intrepid mourners, what happens to them next. Thank you, everyone. Good night.
Good night. Bye. Good night. Good night. Good night.